So Luke 10, verse 25. Hear now the word of the living God. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, or clothes, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, what a great and convicting word there is before us. And so the minister asks that Christ would preach now through him, that it would be Christ who would be seen, even the one who delivered the parable, might be the one that preaches a personal word to each and every one of us now, that by the Spirit we would know what it, uh, better what it means to love thy neighbor as ourselves. And so, Father, we pray for a great filling of the Spirit of the minister and also of the congregation now as they hear the word of God. May Christ be magnified. Christ, who is the greatest, uh, not just a good Samaritan, but the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. May he be present among us in the preaching of the word. And to that end, Father, we pray you would help me preach, not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of the congregation should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is not uh, far-fetched to say that practical religion is at a low ebb, low point in Reformed churches of today. You know, we love to purchase our books. Sometimes we may even read them. Uh, and then we watch our conferences. But the question is, how are we doing in an exercise of our faith? Not just knowing the content of faith. But how are we doing in the exercise of it? How do we understand the doctrine that comes in other parts of the word of God? That faith without works is dead. How do we understand that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves? In other words, 
Where do Christ's words here at the end of our pericope in verse 37, how do his words go and do? Go and do. How do those factor in our lives? Go and do likewise. Not as we heard last time as a rule for justification, as a rule by which we may be saved and have eternal life, but rather as a response to God's mercies. Do we show mercy to others, having remembered that God has shown us mercy and has given us Christ, and that we in response are to live as His holy ones? We are to live as Christians ought to live by the grace of God. You know, as I mentioned that uh, perhaps piety and exercise of religion is at a low point in the Reformed faith, it's not a deficiency in the Reformed faith itself. The deficiency is in us. After all, our confession of faith has chapter 16, an entire chapter on good works. The deficiency is not in our faith. It's not in the Bible. It is actually in us. We are to have the fruit, the lively evidences of our faith, of a lively faith, the faith that is alive. This is the calling of God on us all. In recent years, however, and it's striking to see this, the Reformed faith has gotten quite heady, as though that's the only part of our religion, purely and entirely sometimes about matters of worship and doctrine, and all these things are good. That's not the problem. These are good things. These are necessary things, often lost in much of the church. We love and value worship and doctrine, but that is just part of true religion. It's not the whole of true religion. You know, the Lord, in fact, has had controversies. You've seen it in the Bible. With those who worship God according to the word of God itself, but will not show mercy to men made in his image. In Isaiah 1, as that great book opens, the Lord asked, what is the purpose? What purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Now, those are sacrifices he asked for. Why does he say, what purpose are these? He said he hated their worship. He said they were troubling to him. He hated bearing them up, even though they had the right form of worship. He said, instead, when you pray, even as we have prayed in worship, I will hide mine eyes from you. Why? Because he said, learn to do well. Seek judgment Relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. In other words, what use is your worship if you will not love your neighbor as yourself? It's just talk. It's going through vain motions. It's obnoxious in the sight of God. And he says you are deceived. And so this is one of those texts that's a necessary meditation for those of us who have a high view of worship For we may be as the priest and the Levite in the parable, claiming that we have business to do with God and will walk right past somebody who is half dead. And may that never be you or me, children of God. And so to avoid that snare, our theme is the importance of loving our neighbor in true religion, the importance of loving our neighbor in true religion. And we'll divide this narrative under the three heads on your bulletin. First, the question, second, the parable, and third, the application. So first, the question. 
before we consider the parable itself, which I will consider in the second heading, um, I want to consider with you the doctrines that make sense of the parable itself. So that when we exposit the parable, we know what undergirds it theologically speaking. And the parable becomes just a potent and powerful illustration of what the word of God teaches from the rest of the Holy Scripture. So with that, some review. Last time, we considered the question from the lawyer that launches this uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. We recall that often we ignore the question and we launch into the parable and we get the wrong impression of what Christ is teaching us here. The question was this, in verse 25, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ then launches into his discourse saying, if that is what you want, if you want to understand how to do and have eternal life, if meriting eternal life is the question, then you must follow the law's demands. And as you heard last time, the law's demands are summarized in two parts, as he shows in this text. First, insofar as the law pertains to God, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And second, insofar as the law pertains to our duty to our fellow man, love thy neighbor as thyself. This is an incredibly, incredibly high bar. And yet it is righteous. And it is so high that only one has ever attained unto it, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Not Adam, not you, not me, not the holy prophets, not the holy apostles. Only one, Jesus Christ. After all, just ask yourself, have you, have I loved our God with every faculty of our soul with constancy? No. It's plain to see. We don't always love God, the true God, with every fiber of our being. And have we loved, any of us, loved our neighbor as ourself at each and every opportunity? But this is the summation of the law of God. And if you want to earn eternal life in that way, this is what is set before you. The law is a covenant of works. This is how you inherit eternal life. And well, try it and you will fail utterly and miserably. You already have failed, which means that you are done for. It's impossible. And yet this is very just of God to require, isn't it? Because we ought to love God and we ought to love God with all of our being because he made us and he is most blessed. He is the perfect being. We ought to love him. If we can't love him, who can we love? He is owed this. And we ought to love those made in his image as ourselves. This is righteous. This is good. The law is good. The problem is us. We are sold under sin. We are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God and that is our fault. That we don't love. Not the law's fault. But we heard that even though God is righteous and can say, you need to love me and you need to love others as yourself, God looks down on us. Even as we remembered in the 103rd Psalm, as we were called to worship, God the Father looks down on his elect and he pities them and he loves them and he is gracious to them. And we heard last week that he is so gracious to us that we remember in Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto whom? Christ, 
that we may be justified not by works, but by what? Faith. That we would have a standing with God in Jesus Christ, that he would account us as righteous in Christ alone. And so we praise God that there is a second rule for salvation found in the covenant of grace. That the man, woman, or child who even this day cast themselves upon the Lord for mercy, who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, are accepted as righteous. Not having their own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, blessed Christ, given to them. Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And we praise God for it. And we remember that salvation is not of works, but of faith. However, as we come back to our text, the lawyer did not yet understand his need for Christ in that way. And as we read here in the text, as many seek to do when they hear the law, um, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. He tries to evade the law's demands. Can, Can I reduce what the law is saying here? He attempts to dodge and to evade it. It's that his merits, his own works would be good in some way for God to accept. That at the end of the day, he didn't need Christ. All he needed was himself to justify himself. And this is the great and terrible deceitfulness of man's heart. If you've been converted later in life, you know it. You likely thought of yourself as good. That God has no controversy with me because I am at the end of the day fundamentally good. I'm a good person. I'm no Hitler after all. But the bar is not Hitler. The bar is love God with all your being and love your neighbor as your own self. So he asked, the lawyer did, who was my neighbor in the hope that he may sneak into heaven. His hope was maybe I can can fulfill this if my neighbor is strictly limited to those that I love those in my own circle, maybe in my own nation, maybe in my own tribe. And this is how he seeks to justify himself. But Jesus has none of that. You know, try, and we think about the parable before us, you know, you try to justify yourself before God. And all Jesus is going to do on the day you die is to bring the law's demands crushing down on you. And he will declare you guilty as he convicts us from parables like this about what we have left undone and what we have not done that we ought to have done. But the lawyer asks the question, who my neighbor is? And what I want to establish from the law itself is that he should have known the answer. He absolutely should have known the answer. In other words, Jesus did not need to teach him anything new. And as a lawyer, he ought to know what the word of God says. Because loving our neighbors ourselves, as we heard last Lord's Day, comes from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, maybe the lawyer thought, well, if this is the second precept of the law, maybe my neighbor is very tightly connected to the children of thy people. And so maybe it is possible to keep the law if I love those who are the children of my people. And then, you know, of course, the parable makes sense why Jesus brings a Samaritan into the picture. And maybe even the man thought, not just Israelites, uh, maybe my own tribe, maybe those are my own people. 
uh, it maybe can be constrained like that. And of course, of course, the folly is no man even loves his own people in the way that God demands us to. Um, in fact, I was thinking about this humorously. If I think about just the bare precept, the only way you can be justified by love thy neighbor as thyself is if your neighbor is defined as yourself and yourself only. That's the only way you can be justified by this precept. But Christ uh, uh, teaches the lawyer that he should have known better anyway, because less than 20 verses later in Leviticus 19, in Leviticus 19.34, you would have read, but the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you don't have to be a very good lawyer to read the law of God and 20 verses later saying, seeing that even strangers, even aliens to Israel were to be loved as yourself. You don't even need good and necessary consequence. You can directly see it in the word of God. Now the reason is important for us as well as we think on loving those who are not even Christians because we were once like them, Leviticus 19.34 says. Once strangers to God, once slaves to sin, as our neighbors are. And we remember what Peter said, which in times past we were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so when we think of loving the stranger, even in the Old Testament, in the first five books of Moses, you find because we ourselves were liable to God's wrath, we are to love those made in God's image, even if they're not believers. And as a lawyer, he should have known it goes even farther than strangers. He was to even love his own enemies. Exodus 23, 4 through 5. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, Thou shalt surely help with him. So in Luke 6, that we considered a long time ago, when Jesus said, love your enemies, do good unto them which hate you, he did not create any new morals. He's simply reiterating what the Old Testament has said on how you love your neighbor. And so, in other words, if this man were a lawyer, he answered rightly, the Lord Jesus Christ, he ought to know what the law demands. These aren't strange and foreign concepts in the word of God. He simply, though, did not want to admit what the word of God has to say. And I think in that, he is a great chastisement on us as well. That you and I can know the word of God. You and I can memorize the word of God. And due to the deceitfulness of our hearts, we can ignore what the word of God plainly says. This is a great evil that is within us because Jesus here teaches nothing new or novel with the good Samaritan. This is the deceitfulness of sin and of men's hearts to evade God's rule. As we remember in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. And the warning again for us as Christians who know the scripture well, we probably memorized much of the word of God, is that we can seek to evade what the word of God plainly says. It's remarkable, I thought, how the Lord Jesus uses a lawyer to chastise us. 
showing that men who devote their lives to the study of the word of God often have this problem themselves. Much less you and I, or at least you, I'm called to study the word of God, but ministers are chastised by this. You as well are chastised by this. It shows us how often we err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, though we know the scriptures mentally. You know, I've lost track of how many times counsel has been given to Christians who know what the word of God says, and yet they think it doesn't apply to them for some reason or another or or seek to evade it in some way. Now, you know, at the face of it, when we come to this parable and we come to the Lord's teaching, we say, how can this man not know such things? But we do not look down on that man so much as we look on ourselves with astonishment. How can we not know these things, brethren? Even the parable itself that we come to, how do we not know these things? It's not because the word is unclear. It's because of the deceitfulness of our own sinfulness. We don't have a comprehension problem. We have a sin problem. But as Reformed Christians then, I I do want to meditate on this thought for a moment. Why is the focus of this text on the second table of the law and not the first? Why did Jesus not spend time with the lawyer on love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind? Instead, why does he spend it on love thy neighbor as thyself? After all, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God. And loving thy neighbor is actually in the balance, not as weighty as loving God. And the answer is this. The second table of the law is a diagnostic for our faith. It's a diagnostic for our faith. It reveals to us tangibly and beyond dispute whether or not we truly love God as we say we love God. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Listen to that again. If a man say, I love God, but hateth his brother, he is what? A liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. You see, these two commandments are conjoined. In a sense, they're not separable. You violate love thy neighbor as thyself, and God says you violate love thy God. And vice versa as well. The law is to be kept whole and entire. You violate one point of the law, the Bible says you violate all of it. That said, brethren, the teaching is this. It is very easy to deceive yourself into saying you love the invisible God. This is the deceitfulness of our sinful heart. You say you love the invisible God, you yearn for Jesus Christ. If so, where is your love for neighbor? who is made in his image. Where is it? What will God say, 1 John 4.20, uh, of your professed love for him if you don't love your neighbor? God will say, liar. You're a liar. You're a liar. That's what he says in the word of God. You say you love me, but you don't love uh, your neighbor. You are a liar. So the second table of the law is a diagnostic for our faith and our souls. It's more tangible. It's more tangible to reveal whether we are in the faith. 
Well, as we consider love thy neighbor as thyself, what the precept teaches you as you understand it from the commandment as well as our parable is that what you would do for yourself, especially in matters of mercy, you are to do for your neighbor. Whatever you would do for yourself when uh, you are afflicted is what you are to do for your neighbor when your neighbor is afflicted. That's just the plain and basic teaching of this children. You know, I've just uh, been always astonished, though, at how people twist the word of God. You know, that satanic principle from the very beginning of the Bible that you see in the devil. Uh, a lot of times, and I've just been astonished by this, that some people take this precept here of love thy neighbor as thyself and say, you know what you need to do most of all is you need to grow in self-love. You need to love yourself more so that you can love others. It's a ridiculous thing, but it's out there now, strangely. And it's remarkable how sinful man is to twist just about anything. Christ is not saying love yourself better. He is saying you love yourself enough. Now go and love others the way you would love yourself. It's the spirit of the age that says this is a text about self-love. You know, if you follow the parable, it has nothing to do with the Samaritan man's journey of self, uh, self-actualization or self-discovery or self-love. It is about a man who loves another. It has nothing to do with him growing to love himself. You and I love, our, each, uh, love ourselves enough And Christ says, love others the way you would love yourself. So with these interpretive keys with us, we can consider the parable itself. And the parable is given as an illustration of these truths that we have heard from the word of God. And what is remarkable and wonderful about Christ's parables is this, right? Christ doesn't argue back and forth with the man over what the law teaches. He gives an illustration that is so profound, that is so plain, that at the end of the day, all that the man can do is agree with the Lord. It becomes as obvious as the nose on his face as to the teaching of what love thy neighbor as thyself is. And Christ's parables cut us to the heart, as all the parables do in the scripture. You remember that David was cut to the heart when Nathan brings that parable to him. And so at the end of this parable, the truth of the word of God cannot be argued as the man concludes rightly. So let's consider the parable in our second head. When we pick it up in verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and we read that thieves robbed him of his clothes, they brutalized him, and they left him half dead just on the side of the road. Now, just for some background, at the time of Christ, many priests and Levites lived in Jericho and an estimate is about 12,000 lived in Jericho in Christ's day. And they would obviously have to travel between Jericho and Jerusalem in order to minister to the temple. And the distance was about 18 miles or so. And so this isn't a purely hypothetical kind of um, scenario, uh, because robbers would also often waylay travelers on the way there, knowing this was a common route. Now, that begs the question, I suppose, and you can consider it yourself because Christ doesn't reveal it. No need in thinking about it too deeply, I don't think, whether the man who was left for dead was a Levite himself. However, he was most certainly a Jew, as you can tell from the parable and the Samaritan being brought in as the quote-unquote hero of the, the story. Well, this man lays on the side of the road, half dead, and in verse 31, a priest comes 
And when he sees the half-dead man, what does he do? Does he have pity on him? Does he look on him? Does he tend to him? No, this man of God, he just goes to the other side of the road. He crosses to the other side, doesn't even want to travel on the same side of the road. Next comes a Levite, another man who is brought up in a religious family, so to speak, looks on him and also passes on by on the other side. Now, this is what Christ has designed this parable uh, to be. Uh, It is meant to be obnoxious even to the casual hearer of it that two ostensibly religious men would walk past a man in such need. Even the unbeliever kind of is taken aback by it. You know, you think of the priest who is meant to teach the law of God, who knew what the lawyer knew. Love thy neighbor as thyself. A man who was responsible for serving the Lord. And the Levite as well was likely traveling between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho because he had a function in the house of God. You know how Levites served in the house of God. And so these two are servants of God. And what Christians have to realize is that even though we may be men and women of God, is that we may use the service of God to justify evil. You and I can use the service of God to justify evil. You know, maybe you think about what could be going on in their minds. Well, we are going to serve God. We are going to serve God. We have religious duties to perform. We cannot help this man. We have to serve the Lord. You know, you think about maybe the priest was afraid of becoming ceremonially unclean. If he touched a dead person, according to Leviticus 21. Now, the man wasn't dead yet, so it doesn't apply yet. But maybe his fear is something like this. If I tend to the man and he dies on me, then I will be ritually unpure for seven days. And I couldn't minister in the temple, Numbers 19.11. So what do we say to these things, right? And, and on first blush, you may even have a sense where maybe this is right. Maybe this is proper. This is the worship of God after all. But is that how God deals with the matter? No. In Hosea 6.6, which everyone at this time should have known, the Lord said, what? For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. In fact, that text in Hosea 6.6 is so important to the Lord Jesus that he said in Matthew 9.13, Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what that means. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he doesn't want or value worship. That's not the point. Because the Lord and his apostles and the prophets before taught us to worship God. But the point is this, that God is so gracious, God is so merciful, that when a man needs mercy, he says, you show mercy to a man who needs it, rather than give worship to a God, and you need to think of it this way, than give worship to a God who does not need worship. Have you ever thought on that? God says, I do not need your worship. Yes, it is your obligation to me. Yes, you owe it to me. I am worthy of being worshipped. However, men made in my image need mercy, whereas I do not need, I do not require worship. Have you ever thought on that? This is the simple and plain doctrine of, the, uh, of God and man. God is ever blessed. 
If we never worshipped him, he would remain ever blessed. If no holy angel ever fell down before the throne, he remains ever blessed. However, if we do not help man, man may perish. Do you understand the distinction here? And the grace and the heart of God in these matters, even to sinners, even to sinners, how gracious God is, that he might say, I desire mercy over even my own worship, that if a man needs and requires mercy, give it to him. Even if it precludes you from coming into worship for a time. Now these theological principles lead us to proper practice and it should be obvious to us if we knew the word of God and we knew the doctrine of God and we knew the doctrine of man. You know, this is a a tremendous discourse and uh, don't have time at all today to enter into it. It's suited for an entire sermon. But the point is this. There is no religious excuse for not helping a man who needs and requires our help. We do not neglect men and women in need on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day. It would be actually to profane the Lord's day if we did that kind of thing. If we said, I need to get to church and there's a man laying on the side of the road and we say, well, worship starts in 15 minutes and I've got to get to worship. No, we would be profaning. We would be uh, raising the anger of God if we did such a thing. You know, if a man or woman started having a medical emergency in our midst right now, what does God expect? Us to continue singing his praise while one clutches their chest and falls to the ground or to cease even worship to tend to the man? The answer is obvious, I pray, by now. It would be a great affront to God if we didn't help him. How can you sing God's praises while a man perishes? That is not holy. You see how easy it is, brethren, though, to be deceived. To say we love God, it is too easy to say it. But these men in the parable show that their love for God was not what one might think of these holy men. These men who probably commanded such respect among the people, who would probably be looked upon as leaders, men of God, but they did not love their neighbor who lay dying in the street like a a dying dog, an affront to God. So what we profess out of the word of God is acts of worship do not actually have a higher place than the obligation to show mercy. Moral duties actually supersede and are greater than ritual or ceremonial. That's the plain teaching of the word of God. Well, By way of contrast to these two men, Jesus introduced a third in verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion on him. Now, this man was a Samaritan, and it was just last chapter that we saw the Samaritans. And we remember that the Samaritans and the Jews were antagonistic one to another. Luke 9, we considered that. And that antagonism in Luke 9 was especially shown when the Samaritans refused to receive Jesus and his disciples. You remember James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to burn the Samaritan village. And the Lord Jesus rebuked them and said that they did not know what spirit, what manner of spirit they were of. 
that the Son of God did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. But in all of that, we saw there was great and tremendous religious animosity and ethnic animosity between Jew and Samaritan. The Samaritans had rejected most of the scripture. They had rejected the Jewish temple. And that all sprang, we remember, from Jeroboam's idolatry um, when he seceded from Judah. The Samaritans also were not of pure Israelite blood, but were mixed with the, the blood of Gentiles and pagans. And so as the woman of Samaria said to Jesus in John 4, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, Remember, she was astonished that Jesus spoke to her, much less asked for a drink of water. Now, in view of that, in view of Luke 9, isn't it extraordinary to see how the Holy Spirit moves Luke to structure this third gospel? That in the very next chapter, after being insulted and um, treated so poorly by the Samaritans. Here Jesus brings a parable where a Samaritan is the so-called hero of the parable. And I think that shows you a bit of our Lord's own heart, that he makes the hero of a parable from a people who insults him. Now, what a gracious heart the Savior has. Well, with that for way of review on who the Samaritans are, well, the Samaritan, he sees a man lying in the street and has compassion on him. And as you remember from Wednesday night, this is what we heard from Colossians 3, 12. This man has bowels of mercies, like his heart is moved for a man made in God's image who is struck down, bleeding to death, laying in the street, and nobody is coming to his aid. He thinks on these things. He sees these things. Maybe he sees other men walking past this man, and his heart is moved. And you know that this man loved his neighbor as himself, and perhaps in his mind he thinks, what if that were me laying in the street like that? What would I want done for myself? And the man is moved with compassion. And this is where we understand throughout the Bible, mercy, acts of mercy, they begin with compassion when our heart is moved by the grace of God to look on another person and not just to say, oh, I guess I'll have to help this person because that's what God expects of me after all. But rather that our heart is moved, that that we cannot walk by, that we are constrained to not walk by the man and instead say, my heart yearns within me for this person. After all, was this not in our Lord Jesus' heart himself? How often do you read in the scripture that he was moved with compassion? And then he ministers to the people of God. His heart was moved with compassion and he feeds the 5,000 and he teaches them many things. Or, or how, how much his heart was moved that he uh, had himself nailed to a cross out of love for sinners who are perishing in the way. So we are to grow in this grace, this heart religion, to have a heart like Christ for, for those in need. And only the grace of God can give it. But true compassion, and you know this was true compassion because it doesn't just stay as a feeling. It moves to act when it can. James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? In context, James is saying faith without works is dead. 
True faith in the Lord produces such works. Again, it is a diagnostic if we merely profess faith, but don't possess true faith. Do we truly love God? You know, in some ways, and some of you who are there on Wednesday night probably feel like I'm preaching the same sermon again. But I think that's just the Lord. That's the Lord wanting to bring this theme providentially to us once more. Perhaps even preparing us for a ministry of mercy here as we look to elect a deacon, a man who will be consecrated and devoted to the ministry of mercy in this place. Well, the Samaritan, time being short, I know I'll try to get through the parable a little quicker. The Samaritan immediately helps the man. Verse 34, and went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Here is love thy neighbor as thyself. He tends to him. He tends to the man's wounds. He gives the man medicinal care. He puts the man on his own beast to carry the man. He brings the man to an inn and tends to him there even. And though the man has other business to tend to, he makes sure that when he leaves, this man is still cared for. He will not abandon him to his pitiful condition. Verse 35 says, And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. So the sum that was given, two pence in the King James or uh, two denarii in the original Greek. Uh, Matthew 20 verse 2 shows that one denarius is a day's wage. So he gives this man two days' wages in order to care for this man who is not related to him, who is a Jew, who is uh, a people who are at enmity with his own. And he promises, when I come back, if there are more expenditures, I will give you that too. Right? He gives out of his own purse. He gives out of his own pocketbook. He gives out of his own substance. What is that but loving thy neighbor as thyself? You see, to love another as yourself is costly to you, isn't it? It's costly. It's going to cost this man his time. It's going to cost this man his money. But that is true compassion. He doesn't look at the pocketbook and say, well, you know, I had saved up all this money and now I'm going to have to use some of it for this man. No. What would I do in this situation where it may struck down? And he takes out of his own purse and he is cheerful in it. Mercy with cheerfulness, as Romans says. So he gives of his own substance, and that is something for us to remember. Loving our neighbor is costly. Even here, a man who's not related to him. You know, you think about this. This man probably knew this Jew would probably, in his heart, harbor some resentment to him, naturally speaking. Who knows what would happen when he wakes up? But it could be that he was also uh, filled with a sense of obnoxiousness that a Jew had, uh, a Samaritan had helped him, a Jew. But he's going to help him anyway. You know, you think about this. What if the roles were reversed after all? And maybe the Samaritan thought about this. Maybe this was a temptation against helping the man. What if I were laying half dead on the street? Would this Jewish person, would he come and help me? And the answer could be very well, no, he wouldn't have. But it doesn't hinder. It doesn't stop this man from helping a man who likely wouldn't lift a finger for him. Again, it is not love my neighbor as he would love me. It is love my neighbor as I would love them, as I love myself. 
For God's sake, the Samaritan would help the man, for God had made the man, and he would show his love for God by loving a man made in his image. So our Lord asks the salient question of the lawyer in verse 36. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Now, the parable is quite convicting, isn't it? What can the man say? What can the man possibly say without sounding a fool? He says rightly, he that showeth mercy on him. Now, I think it's interesting that the man cannot even say the Samaritan. He says, he that showed mercy on him. And you wonder if there is still some of that latent bigotry that the man cannot even admit that a Samaritan is the hero of the parable. In any case, he's right. The Samaritan who showed mercy was a true neighbor, and that is, at the end of the day, the summation of the teaching. Those that show mercy are true neighbors. Those that show mercy are true neighbors and are those who pursue the second table of the law. And how crushing it is when Jesus says to the lawyer, go and do thou likewise. You know, Jesus gives you and I no quarter. He gives us no wiggle room. We're not just here to know who our neighbor is, but to go and do likewise. You see, this is the problem many of us have when we come to the word of God. Jesus doesn't just teach us doctrine, brethren, but as our king, he commands us. That's why his preaching was so different from the preaching of the scribes. The Bible says he taught as one having authority. Authority. Here is his authority. Go and do thou likewise. What a thing it is to hear that from the king. So brethren, this is not a text by which the Lord has just simply taught you to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And so that you can say, oh, okay, thank you, Lord. You have clarified that for me. This is not a bit of trivia for you and I. This is instead a precept of God. Go and do thou likewise. You're not to rest in the general doctrine of the word, but to apply it and live it. Not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. And so let us then conclude with application as our final heading, knowing that time is scarce. You know, when I read some of Alfred Edersheim's comments on the text, he insightfully says that Christ, in a way, reframes the lawyer's question. It's not who is my neighbor, but rather whose neighbor am I? Right? He intends for you to consider for yourself whose neighbor you are so that you may serve them as the word of God compare, uh, calls us to. And what is the answer, children, as you've considered this parable? The answer is whosoever I cross paths with, whosoever I know, whosoever I see, whosoever there is that I perceive, whether they're of my tribe or not, whether tribes be defined with ethnicity or uh, denominational affiliation or religion itself. We are to have compassion on all, on all who suffer. Every ethnicity, the Jew, the Russian, the Arab, the African, the Chinese, and so on and so forth. We are to have compassion on all men. We are to have compassion on all those of other religions, false religions, 
the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Roman Catholic. We are still to have compassion on them, though we are not to countenance false religion. We are to have compassion on all kinds of sinners, be they transgendered or homosexual or something else. We don't excuse their sin. We do not approve of sin. But when in need, we show them mercy. This is just the plain teaching of the word of God. But most of all, we show mercy by not, never neglecting that love for neighbor involves showing and sharing the gospel to those who are perishing in the way. When you think of the ultimate realities of these things, when we see men and women in our paths that are perishing and are on the way to hell, what should we do? Should we walk across the other side of the street and have no interaction with them? Or should we instead show them the word of God that says Christ came into the world to save sinners? And if you do perish, even as we read in the Revelation 20th chapter, as our scripture reading, if you don't repent, you will be facing an eternity of hellfire. How can we, knowing such things, just pass men and women and even children by without showing them the mercy of the gospel? We often pass by them and hide our faces and walk across the street. In any case, brethren, we need more practical religion. We need more practical religion. And we must not seek to hide behind the first table of the law. The Lord knows we will often try to hide there. That as Christians, we will go to church and we will keep the Sabbath and, and that is enough. In fact, we may not, as you've heard, already keep the Sabbath if there is a need for mercy and we neglect it. Now, I, I want to also say, as Christians, remember, um, church going and mercy are not in conflict. It's an extraordinary circumstance, typically, when they are. We can worship God and even on the same day be merciful to our neighbor. But when these things directly conflict in God's providence, we show mercy to, uh, to neighbor. In any case, there is the danger of religious hypocrisy if we neglect the second table. Uh, Matthew twenty three twenty three. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. And of course, he, he cites Micah six eight. Law, judgment uh, of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Judgment, mercy, and faith are the weightier matters of the law. These are to be done even as we do not leave the other matters undone. And when the world, Christian, sees believers as hypocrites, unwilling to lift a finger for those that are perishing in body, those who have any needs, why would they believe a single solitary thing we have to say when we say we love their souls? When we say we really care that you be right with God, so here's the gospel. Are they going to perceive we really truly have an interest in them if we have no care for their bodily needs? But Christ cares for both. After all, it's our great hope that we will have a resurrection of the body as well as the salvation of our souls. So perhaps these are matters to take before the Lord perhaps an area of growth for us as it is for many in our faith. But also, let us close on this for an encouragement. You know, as we look on the Samaritan, all we are seeing really, aren't we, is just a very faint and a very pale reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's all he is, right? What does the scripture say? For when we were yet without strength, even as this man laying dead and bleeding out, Christ didn't pay an innkeeper to care for us, but he instead gave his own life for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. And this commends to us and demonstrates for us the love of God, that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And he didn't just give us olive oil and wine. He gave his blood and he gave his body. He gave us that balm which cures us of our sin. He shed his own life. He poured out his own life for us. Wounded for our transgressions when he saw us perishing in the way. So we cannot be justified by compassion, our compassion anyway. We are justified by Christ. Let's not forget that. Because so many have forgotten that and this parable becomes a crushing burden, impossible to bear. We cannot have eternal life by it. We are justified surely and only because Christ had mercy on us. But having received the mercy of God in Christ, right? What do we read of in Galatians 2.20 uh, when we think of the Son of God loving us and giving his life for us? Now we live our life by the faith of the Son of God. Our life is crucified with Christ. We live in view of what Christ has done and he is calling us to love others as ourselves even as he did. This is good and this is right and yet it is often neglected and it ought never be, brethren. We must thank the Lord that the good shepherd and not the good Samaritan laid down his life for us and out of that, we go and serve our neighbor. Well, may God bless our meditation on this rich parable. For now, let us arise for prayer of Abel. O Lord God of heaven, thou hast even this day wounded our hearts in some way over our lack for neighbor, a lack of love for neighbor. But uh, as you have pierced our heart, Lord, would you heal it? Would you bind it? Would you cause us to look upon our faith aright? That we would see that love for God and love for neighbor are not two uh, disjointed things in a sense, but instead are conjoined, the law as a whole. Help us not to hide behind our love for God. Help us to be convicted when our Uh, profession of a love for God is really not a love for God, but is instead a falsehood. Help us to love our neighbor even as ourself. Help us to love even those that we find hard to love. As your word says, that even um, the unbeliever loves those who love them, but we are to be children of God who love even our enemies. Help us do so, and may men be drawn to Christ by Uh, the work of God in us. We pray for any here who do not know the Lord Jesus, who have not heard of Christ shedding his blood to save sinners, and may they then believe on the Lord this day. May salvation come to them. May they see that following the law of God cannot save them, it would only condemn them, but may they be converted to Christ, and may they then follow the law uh, uh, with faith and love for Christ Uh, with repentance whenever their faith falters. And so may you bless the people of God here and may may we be loving neighbors 
uh, to all in our sphere. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.